You know, the, I think the worship team just did such an absolutely fabulous job this morning. And I'm often telling the worship leaders that the same spirit that leads in the moment leads in the planning. And uh, I, I can assure you, the spirit led in Melissa's planning this week because all the songs that you just sang dovetail so wonderfully into our time together here in the Word. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to be in Psalm 139 today. Psalm 139. Now, this time last year, I was in the final throes of my final year in seminary. My time in seminary was wonderfully exhausting. I am thankful for my experience. I'm, I'm thankful that you supported me along the way. And, and still, I am so thankful to be done. So thankful to be done. Now, sadly, throughout my years at Northern Seminary, I watched a fair few of my fellow students who were actively deconstructing their faith walk away from their faith altogether. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, deconstructionism is a modern phenomenon in which mostly younger evangelicals are analyzing, critiquing, and in most cases, walking away from the faith of their forebears. Now, the breaking point came for, 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 for one of my fellow students as he encountered David in our Old Testament history class. This student just could not rationalize how a man after God's own heart could lust after another man's wife, have an illicit affair with her, and, and cover the whole thing up by having the offended party killed. That was enough for my friend. He pitched the whole thing, walking away from the church and his faith altogether. Sadly, he was a pastor. Now, in all fairness, multiple classes covering 2,000 years of a very checkered church history and a thorough review of the Old Testament is enough to rattle anyone's faith. Our forebears were deeply flawed. They were deeply flawed people. However, they were also a chosen people. An insufficient people chosen to be vessels of God's all-sufficient grace. Last week, we examined the first half of Psalm 139 through the eyes of David, and we saw that the presence of the Lord can be a terribly uncomfortable thing. The knowledge of the Lord is encircling. He knows our actions, our thoughts, our ways, our not-yet-spoken words. But the presence of the Lord is also inescapable. If we ascend to heaven, he's there. If we descend to the grave, he's there. If we rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, guess what? He's there. He is always present. Now, as we pick back up where we left off last week, we immediately see one more characteristic of the Lord's encircling knowledge and his inescapable presence. Verse 11 says, if I, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Now, given the context of this passage, it's not hard to imagine that David desired to be shrouded by a darkness of his own creation. Remember, David was painfully aware of his own sin and the fact that his sin could, could not be concealed from the Lord. 
In fact, the, the most scholarly commentator, sorry, the most scholarly commentary that, that I consulted translates verse 11 as this. Were I to ask, were I to ask the darkness to cover me, were I ask, to ask the light around me to turn to night, David desired to conceal his shame from the Lord. Sound familiar? Think back to Genesis, creation, and the fall. What happened after Adam and Eve took part of the, the forbidden fruit? In Genesis 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from what? From the presence of the Lord. They hid among the trees of the garden as if the trees could hide them. But the Lord God called to them and said, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? It's only natural for David to want to conceal himself. It's only natural for David to, to, to want to conceal himself. But knowing what he knows, he quickly concludes in verse 12, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light, they're the same to you. They're the same. The knowledge of the Lord is encircling. The presence of the Lord is inescapable. And as we see here, the knowledge and the presence of the Lord together... Well, that's illuminating. It's illuminating. And it is on this final point that David's story shifts. He cannot hide. He cannot hide. He cannot enshroud himself in darkness, so he doesn't even try. David once again embraces the knowledge and the presence of the Lord. He's exposed to the all-knowing, all-present light of the Lord, and he comes to four conclusions. He concludes that the Lord created me, the Lord ordained me, the Lord has endeared to me, and the Lord will not leave me where he found me. And we're going to spend our time unpacking those four conclusions this morning. First, the Lord created me. Look down at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your, all your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. David comes to see that he is a wonderful work. A wonderful work skillfully woven and wrought by, his, by, by the hands of his creator. And his posture changes from one of shame and hiding to praise and thanksgiving. He says, I will give thanks to you. Now, what is David thankful for? What is David praising the Lord for? David is thankful that God created him to be him. God is thankful that God, or David is thankful that God created David to be David. 
Now, you might say, aha, but David, David, you're a coward. You're a coward. You were supposed to be off, off at war and you stayed home. David, you, you're an adulterer. That, that man that you sent off to war, you slept with his wife. You're a murderer, David. You, you had that man killed to cover everything up. How, how, can you, how can you thank God for who you are, David? Do you have absolutely no self-awareness whatsoever? Who do you think you are? Now, for sure, those were the types of questions my fellow student was struggling with. So what's going on? What's going on here? Has David lost perspective? Is David devoid of self-awareness? Well, quite to the contrary, he continues, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and my soul knows it very well. My soul knows it very well. David isn't losing perspective. He's regaining perspective. David isn't losing perspective. He is regaining perspective. In Psalm 139, David casts aside his shame and he comes to terms with who he was created to be. He lost perspective and it got him in a heap load of trouble. But he came back to his senses because he knows He knows his potential can only fully be realized as he humbly dwells in the presence of his creator. You know, the same is true for you and me. The same is true for you and me. David says, wonderful are your works. Wonderful all your works. That's an all-inclusive statement. That's an all-inclusive statement that includes you and it includes me. Our potential as skillfully created beings can only be realized as we willingly dwell in and with the presence of the Creator. But it can be realized. It can be realized. You know, all too often I fear that we miss out on the abundant life, not because the Lord is stingy with his abundance, but because we're unwilling to receive his abundance. Instead of resting all of who we are, good, bad, or otherwise, upon the all-sufficient grace of the Lord, we, we, we languish in Christian pretensions. We languish in Christian pretensions, pretending to be something better than what we are, living out a superficial faith. Or or we give ourselves over to our insecurities, believing that we are something worse than what we are, living out a defeated faith. Regardless of the starting point, we all end up in the same place. We lose perspective. Longing to be anyone other than the wonderful, grace-needy creations that we were created to be. I was listening to an Alistair Begg sermon on this passage a few weeks ago, and he, he quotes a timeless hymn, a classic hymn that I remember singing as a little child. Perhaps you remember this fine piece of classic hymnody. It's entitled, If I Were a Butterfly. If I were a butterfly, I thank you, Lord, for giving me wings. And if I were a robin in a tree, I'd thank you, Lord, that I could sing. And if I were a fish in the sea, I wiggled my tail and giggled with glee. 
But I'm just thankful, Father, for making me, me. Not you, but me. Why? Because you gave me a heart and you gave me a smile. You gave me Jesus and you made me your child. And I'm just thankful, Father, for making me, me. There is no need for you to pretend that you are something better than you are. Or for you to believe that you are something worse than you are. Yes, you were born into sin. Yes, you were sinful from the womb. But, but sin simply mars you. It does not render you worthless. Sin taints you. It doesn't make you complete rubbish. God don't make junk, the familiar phrase goes, right? That might be greeting card theology, but it's good greeting card theology. And think about it. Can something of no value be redeemed? Can something of no value be redeemed? And the implied answer here is no, absolutely not. Only something with intrinsic value can be redeemed. Jesus gives us three wonderful pictures that illustrate this very point in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15, right? A sheep is lost, searched for, and found. A coin is lost, searched for, and found. A beloved son goes missing, and guess what? He's found. He's found. In all three cases, what was lost was found, and what was found was rejoiced over. Why? Why? Well, because in all three cases, what was lost was of tremendous intrinsic value to the one who lost it. We do ourselves no good when we live in pretense, with our heads buried in the ground and our feathers waving in the air. We do ourselves no good. With David in mind, Chuck Swindoll wrote, Today we live in a world that says, in many ways, if you just make a good impression, that's all that matters. But you will never be a man or woman of God if that is your philosophy. Never. You cannot fake it with the Almighty. He is not impressed with externals. He always focuses on the inward qualities, those things that take time and discipline to cultivate. We do ourselves no good when we live in pretense. Likewise, we do ourselves no good when we live in constant defeat, running ourselves down and believing the worst of ourselves. And the reality is, when it comes down to it, there is little difference between pretense and shame. There's little difference between pretense and shame. Shame is really nothing more than defeated pride, a wounded ego. If we were more confident, we would put on airs. We would gladly strut our stuff around like a self-righteous peacock if, if we could only, uh, if we weren't only so consumed by the knowledge of our molting feathers. David has tremendous value to the Lord. You have tremendous value to the Lord, and I have tremendous value to the Lord. Why? Why? Because the Lord created David. And the Lord created you. And he created me. And as we will see next, what the Lord creates, the Lord also ordains. Look at verse 16. 
Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not even one of them. Modern science would like you to think, modern science would like you to think that you are no more than a happy little cosmic accident. A predetermined cog spinning in the great expanse of the Newtonian machine. Modern science would like for you to believe that your life is predetermined while at the same time saying there was no one around to determine it. Modern science would like for you to believe that you are part of a cosmic machine while at the same time believing there was no one around to build the machine. Now, you know something? Secular humanism makes good sense. Secular humanism makes good sense as long as you don't wonder about what happened before all matter gathered into an infinitely small point before exploding into the observable universe. Secular humanism makes good sense as long as you don't go looking for the man behind the curtain. On the other hand, there's theology. There's theology, what was once referred to as the queen of the sciences. A failed theologian once wrote these words. This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This failed theologian also wrote, from true lordship it follows that the true God is living, intelligent, and powerful. From the other perfections, that he is supreme or supremely perfect. He's eternal and infinite, omnipotent and omniscient. That is, he endures from eternity to eternity, and he is present from infinity to infinity. He rules all things and knows all things that happen or can happen. Do you know what happened to, to that failed theologian? Do you know what happened to that failed theologian who penned these words? He switched disciplines. He became a scientist. He became a, a somewhat successful and somewhat well-regarded physicist. You may have heard of him. His name was Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton wrote those words. The most beautiful system of the sun, planet, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. The reality is, according to David and Newton, you were predetermined. But you are far from an accident. Each chapter of your life was lovingly and carefully written in his book. Every sentence, every moment ordained in infinite wisdom and love. David knows this well, and so he concludes that the Lord is endeared to me. Look at verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, scholars contend that this is not a, a reference to the Lord's thoughts at large. It's not a reference to, to, to his thoughts at large, but, but specific to the thoughts of the psalmist, of David. 
Again, David uses a vivid word picture to demonstrate the expansive knowledge of the Lord, right? He says, if I should count them, that is the thoughts of God, should I count them, they, they would outnumber the sand. Your thoughts of me, O God, would outnumber the sand. Now, the beaches here in New England are so small. They're so small. They're tiny. They're beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but they're also pretty small. I grew up going to the Jersey Shore as a kid, and those beaches are huge. They're humongous. There's probably more sand in Wildwood, LBI, or Ocean City than all of New England. And the sand there is not like the, the grainy sort of sand that we have here. The sand there is fine. And it's so fine that the individual grains are nearly microscopic. So when I think of the Lord's thoughts of me outnumbering the grains of the sand, I picture those massive beaches from my childhood. And these thoughts are no longer judicial, right? As we saw in verses 1 through 12, they're no longer, it's no longer judicial knowledge, a knowledge that carries a weight of judgment to it. There's a shift there, a positive Notice the shift in David's language in verse 17. He says, how precious, how precious, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. His thoughts are precious. Now, if you look around, it's obvious that our culture is having a massive identity crisis. We've even taken a simple binary reality like sex and the most base of identity traits endowed to us by our sex, and we've exchanged them for endless classifications that no one understands, which all utterly fail to explain who we are. Now, you can say amen to that, but be careful. You can say, you can say amen to that, but, but here's the thing. My fear is that we in the church are no better off. No better off. Remember, Back to one of our previous points, there is no need for us to pretend that we are something better than we are or to believe that we are something worse than we are. Yet we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We, we puff out our feathers or we hide away in shame. Re regardless of what you do, both are sins of the ego. Both are sins of the ego. Both lack self-awareness, and most certainly they lack the awareness of, of the creator God. So it's no wonder it falls on deaf ears when we as a church cast shade at a world in crisis. We're casting stones in a glass house constructed from our own pride and our own shame. We're, we're calling out the proverbial speck in someone else's eye while our eyes are just filled with lumber. You could build a house with everything that's in there. Here's the truth of the matter. Here's the truth of the matter that we all need to come to terms with. No one who has ever, is now, or ever will walk on the face of this planet, Christian or otherwise, can truly know who they are if they are not living in the knowledge of who they were created to be. And the only way to live in that knowledge is to consider the precious thoughts of the one who created you. As it is, we puff ourselves up or we run ourselves down. I've often heard Bill Johnson 
say, and, and for those of you who know who Bill Johnson is, um, I don't agree with him on many things, but I agree with him on this. I've often heard Bill Johnson say this, you cannot afford to have a thought in your head about yourself that is not a thought about you in the head of God. You cannot afford to have a thought in your head about yourself that is not a thought about you in the head of God. We are not to think more of ourselves than we ought. But we're not to think less of ourselves than we ought. Both extremes are sins of the ego masquerading as piety. Instead, we're to think of ourselves as Paul teaches us. How? With sober judgment. With sober judgment. There's no need for the masquerade. Why? Because his thoughts of us are precious. They're precious. His thoughts of us are endearing. Why? Because he created us. He created us. You know, I've gotten into woodworking. Some of you know that. I tend to like the things that I create. Guess what? God created you and he likes you. So you can drop the act and you can drop your guard. You're a dearly loved child who's beloved by the creator God. We just get so caught up in these extremes though. One way or the other. I've often heard Tim Keller say something to this effect. You are infinitely more sinful than you know, but you are infinitely more loved than you know. You are infinitely more sinful than you know, but you're infinitely more loved than you know. Why? Because he's redeemed us. He's redeemed us. He's redeemed that which is intrinsic in us. And he sees us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Every bad bit of us was nailed there with him. And all that remains in God's eyes, all that remains is the intrinsic value which is most precious to him. We're like John Bunyan's pilgrim. Do you remember what happened when he came to the cross? In the pilgrim's progress? He ran until he came to a place where the road began to climb a hill. At the top of the hill was a cross, and a little way below the cross was a tomb. Just as Christian got to the cross, his burden fell off his shoulders and back and began to tumble down the hill until it disappeared in the mouth of the tomb. And he never saw it again. He never saw it again. What the Lord creates, the Lord ordains. What the Lord ordains, the Lord is endeared to. And so David finally concludes, the Lord will not leave me where he found me. Look at verse 19 with me. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the uttermost hatred. They have become my enemies. I hope none of you have picked that out as your life verse. <laughs> now, first glance, this four-verse imprecatory prayer seems somewhat out of place. But I assure you, it is not. It is there for a reason. And while I would love to take this section verse by verse, time simply does not allow for it this morning. 
Expository preaching, it means that we preach, that what we preach flows from the text and it represents contextually and honestly, but it does not mean that we preach every nuance of the text. That would be impossible, right? You could preach a thousand sermons on any one verse in this psalm. So with that in mind, here's what we need to know for our sake this morning. First, this prayer is a statement of alignment. David is simply separating himself from the wicked and aligning himself with God. Second, this prayer leaves justice and judgment in the hands of God and God alone. David may be aligned with God in thought, but he takes no action against the wicked. And then finally, we need to read this section and all of the imprecatory psalms in light of the full countenance of Scripture, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus expressly states that we are to what? Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So with that said, let's get back to our main point here. The Lord will not leave David where he found him. David prays in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David ends the psalm where he began. With a keen awareness of the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. There is, however, one key subtle difference between these closing verses and the opening five verses of the psalm. Remember, we concluded last week that when it comes to the encircling knowledge and inescapable presence of the Lord, it's all a matter of posture and perspective. Posture and perspective. This psalm traces a shift in David's posture from from, from one of evasion to invitation. From evading the Lord to inviting the Lord. He stops running from the Lord and he starts running to the Lord. Now, I've been walking with the Lord now for 35 years, mostly stumbling. And in those years, I have learned that much of the Christian life is looking back on who we were the day before, humbly confessing and mourning the sins of that day, and allowing the Lord to lift us up and exalt us once again. And you know what the beauty of that is? You know what the beauty in that is? There's no pride in it. There's no pride in it. None. There's no shame in it either. Absolutely none. I can safely invite the Creator to search me and to know my heart, my inner being, to try me and to know my anxious thoughts, the the thoughts that drive me to pride or shame. I can safely invite Him because His scrutiny of me is only matched by His loving concern. His scrutiny of me is only matched by His loving concern. I can drop my guard because the only thing I am fending off when I keep my guard up is the loving embrace of my Creator. That's it. That's it. As C.S. Lewis said that we saw last week, the, 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 was it, the harshness of God is kinder than the kindness of men. I can safely invite the Creator in. Again, with David in mind, Chuck Sundahl writes, what is God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are completely his, completely. That means there are no locked closets, nothing being swept under the rug, 
That means that when you do wrong, you admit to it, and you immediately come to terms with it. You're grieved over wrong. You're concerned about those things that displease God. You long to please Him in your actions. You care about the motivations behind your actions. That's true spirituality. And that's the first quality that David had. Back to my fellow student from seminary. And there's no judgment in this. This is just observation and sharing. But back to my fellow student from seminary. I think my friend failed to understand the reason for David's place in Scripture. I think he failed to understand why David plays such an important role in Scripture. See, I believe David is a crucial figure in Scripture and in our faith because at some level, we're all David. At some level, we're all David. In fact, I am fully convinced that if we cannot see ourselves in David, then we can't see ourselves at all. Our sins may be different from his, but but they will land us in the same position. If we can't see ourselves as as an insufficient people chosen to be vessels of God's all-sufficient grace, then we will never truly know who we are. Why? Because creation can never know who they are or what they are while they're on the run from the Creator. You know, if David's story ended with the murder of Uriah, then yes, my fellow seminarian would have a point. But his story didn't end there, did it? David's story ended in redemption. And not just redemption, the redemption of something intrinsically valuable to the Creator. So this begs a question this morning. This begs a question. What is your story? What is your story? Is it one of pride and posturing or shame and hiding? And most importantly, will your story to continue and end in pride or shame? Or will your story end in the glorious redemption of that which is intrinsically valuable? Because what the Lord created, the Lord ordained. What the Lord ordained, the Lord is endeared to. And the Lord will not leave that which he created and ordained, that which is endearing and precious to him where he found it. If like David, if like David we saw last week, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If like David we invite him to search our hearts, to to reveal our lingering sins, and then surely he will lead us in the way everlasting. Because that's really all the everlasting way is. To walk with the creator in the knowledge and awareness of the creator and the knowledge and awareness of who I am and who he's created me to be. Why is it the way everlasting? Because it's the complete opposite of the fall. Fall, separation. Humanity chooses not to walk in fellowship with God and it loses its identity. But when we walk with the Lord, we regain our identity and the fullness of who we were meant to be. And we walk in the way that is everlasting. 
And there's no pride in this. There's no shame. And most of all, there's no judgment. Why? Because that judgment was poured out on Christ. And we can actively invite the Lord to scrutinize us. Because he will do it gently and he will do it lovingly. And it is for our benefit and for our good. Why? Because he cares about us. You might have noticed a couple of verses back, I skipped a line. David's talking about how the Lord thinks of him. And then he says, when I awake, you're still here. I think that's an interesting verse. Because David moves from, 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 from being under the threat of God and his judgment to being under the concern of God, and he's able to rest in the comfort of his presence, right? I mean, think about it. When I awake, you're with me. Commentators are all over the place on how to translate that, but, but here's how I understand it. When you're asleep, you're never more vulnerable, right? Someone could sneak in your bedroom and kill you, and you would never know it. You're not going to lay down and rest in a room with someone who might want to take you out. But David comes to a point. (laughs) Some of the spouses are looking at each other right now. (laughs) David, David comes to the point that he can find comfort and rest in God's presence. And not only that, but comfort and rest in his examination of him. Because he knows that any information that God brings to light, search me and know me, O God, see if there be any wicked way in me. Any information that the Lord brings to light is going to be for David's healing, for his good, and for God's glory. And the same is true for every single one of us. Because guess what? God doesn't love David any more than he loves you. You are loved deeply. Drop your guard and let the loving creator embrace his creation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the son. We thank you that you did not spare him, but you gave him for us all. Jesus, we thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of becoming a servant, the point of dying on a cross for our sins. And Lord, every sin that we have ever borne was born on that cross with you. You took it to the grave where we see it no more. And in its place, you have imparted to us life. In your wounds, our wounds are healed. Lord, you created us in love and mercy and grace. And it is in that love, that mercy, and that grace that we thrive, that we live the abundant life. Lord, that you would empower us to cast aside our pride that you would empower us to cast aside our shame. You would empower us to walk in the everlasting way with you. In your most precious, holy name, amen.